Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about breastfeeding, all things breastfeeding, including initiation of breastfeeding, transitioning to work and pumping and weaning breastfeeding. Because it was such a huge topic with so much great information, we've split it into two separate episodes. Part one, we will talk about establishing breastfeeding and things you may need. And in part two, we'll talk about transitioning to work and weaning breastfeeding. We're excited to have Dr. Adrian Hoyt Austin, a newborn pediatrician. You know, a newborn pediatrician sounds like a pediatrician who was just born or something. She's a pediatrician who specializes in newborn babies, and she's also an academic pediatric fellow at UC Davis Children's Hospital, and she's here to join us for today's episode. Dr. Hoyt Austin um, does work as a pediatrician in our newborn nursery at UC Davis and does research in breastfeeding medicine. Her primary interests are improving physician comfort with the management of breastfeeding with the mom and the baby through improving education in the medical setting. She also works at the intersection of population health, telemedicine, and how we can get this information out into the communities to help improve breastfeeding outcomes. Outside of medicine, Dr. Hoy Austin spends time with her two boys. Thank you for being with us to teach us about breastfeeding today. You know, the thing about breastfeeding that always strikes me as interesting is it's like so natural and humans have been doing it forever, right? And yet somehow it has become so complicated sometimes and can be complicated and can have so many challenges. So I'm really glad we're talking about this today. And we thought we would break up our discussion into before the baby is born, initiating breastfeeding, and then planning for going back to work and and weaning, and then potential problems that can happen. Definitely. So if it's okay, I would love to hear your like one minute elevator pitch. Why should a mom breastfeed or why should she try to breastfeed? I think universally every mom that I've met knows that breastfeeding is best for her baby. And some moms tell me that with a sense of guilt because they know it might be hard or they have heard it might be hard to do. But what I want to tell moms today and persons who are pregnant is that breastfeeding is best for you. We know it's best for baby, but I think something that's lost in the conversation is that it's best for mom. And it significantly decreases the risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and a bunch of other things. But I just really want to get that across to moms that breastfeeding is best for you. You already know that it's best for your baby, but it's also best for you. And don't be afraid to reach out to your friends, family, doctors, nurses, anyone to get the help that you need to meet your own breastfeeding goals. So let's um, talk about before the baby is born and how to prepare to succeed in breastfeeding. And I want to be really practical here. So are there certain items that you would recommend moms buy or rent, like, like breastfeeding pumps and bras and pillows and all the stuff that can accompany breastfeeding? 
I just want to to focus on definitely the stuff, but also the substance. So let's chat about the stuff. Sometimes parents, before having the baby, um, they're looking at a baby registry in order to, you know, they're having aunts and uncles and their mom and dad is asking them, what do you need? What do you really need? And it's really hard to navigate that the first time that you're getting pregnant um, and having a baby. Um, So certainly if you're planning on breastfeeding, and you're planning on, during the time that you're breastfeeding, being separated from your baby, getting a breast pump is really important. And thankfully, because of the Affordable Care Act, getting a breast pump covered by your medical insurance is easy to do. So I don't want moms out there to worry that they need to request that on their um, baby registry. Certainly, if you know uh, health insurance isn't an option for that mom, then then requesting it from from fans and family on a baby re- registry makes sense. But talking to your obstetrician before the baby is born and having that device ordered is important. Then that kind of leads me to well, what kind of breast pump should we get? Because there's All sorts of breast pumps. Yeah, that can be overwhelming, that list of all the different ones. And they feel like, mine's not good enough. It's not effective. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So for the breast pumps, there's a manual breast pump. There are electric breast pumps. And then there are hospital-grade breast pumps. So for manual breast pumps, those are typically one-sided. So one breast will be pumping milk at a time. And you use your hands to, uh, to activate the breast pump and to express milk. And that's really an ideal pump for all breastfeeding persons to have around, whether they um, are planning to be separated from their baby or not. Because if there's any time when you have an unplanned separation from your baby, then you can have that breast pump available for you. For people who are planning on going back to work and having a long period of time separated from their baby, then investing or uh, requesting through medical insurance a double electric breast pump is important. And this is usually what most of us think about when we say breast pump. It's a breast pump that plugs into an electric socket. Sometimes they're battery powered and you can kind of hook it up. It pumps both breasts at the same time. You can watch Netflix while you're pumping, do all that sort of stuff that we might do and um, try to relax when we're pumping. Um, And a lot of women, when they go back to work, use a double electric breast pump. The last option, a hospital grade breast pump, is usually for women who are in unique circumstances. Perhaps they have a medical issue that makes it challenging for them to express enough milk for their baby, or their baby has many medical issues that makes it hard for baby to feed, like a baby who is in the neonatal intensive care unit. And sometimes those moms will use or rent for a short period of time a hospital grade pump, which is just a slightly better electric pump than the one that you can get at Target and Walmart or through your insurer. What about pillows and, you know, making sure the breastfeeding comforts are all there for mom once baby comes home? Breastfeeding pillows, uh, they're usually a U-shape or half donut-shape pillow. Some common name brands are a Boppy or another pillow called My Breast Friend. 
<laughs> There's no evidence that this these types of pillows are necessary, but lots of women will tell you, hey, you know, my back really hurts when I'm hunched over and I'm feeding my baby and I'm trying to situate them because they're a little newborn and my arm's getting tired. So it's really nice to have a pillow in front of you to support the baby as you're breastfeeding. So certainly using a boppy, getting the My Breast Friend pillow, it's, it's absolutely something can, that can be washed and reused. So if you have a loving family member or friend who wants to give you a hand-me-down, um, that's absolutely fine to use. That's a great idea. We forget that we can ask our family and friends if they have this lying around or in their garage. So, you know, reusing some of these things can be great. I'm thinking also that it's so important for the mother to be comfortable that maybe a rocking chair is a good thing to plan on having. Yes. So there's some amazing rocker gliders, um, anything from just having a comfy spot to sit. Like if you already have like a lazy boy recliner in your house, certainly if you're looking to invest in a piece of furniture, having a sort of more straighter backed um, a rocking chair that can support mom's back and help her like put her feet up and relax and has some like nice comfy spots for her to put her arms. That's really helpful. Usually those specialty rocking chairs can be purchased at baby retailers. Certainly your big box stores like Target and Walmart and definitely like more of your smaller mom and pop stores that specialize in baby and children's items. I'm curious what your thoughts are on pacifiers, because as a general pediatrician, this is something that I feel like moms and dads like have a lot of anxiety and angst over. They're like, we're trying to wait, but they really just need to suck all the time. But we're trying to establish breastfeeding. What should we do? Um, and so I have my spiel, but I'm really curious to hear what your take is. Pacifiers you know, they can be pretty divisive. There's a lot of people who have, you know, their own ideas about pacifiers and if a baby should use them or if a baby should never use them. So here's the deal. We know that the first six weeks um, after the delivery are really a very critical time for mom to not only recover from the birth, she may have just had major abdominal surgery. She may have had a natural delivery, but either way, she needs to recover. And during that time, we know there's some, and we'll get into this later in the podcast, but there's some very specific changes that happen in the type of milk that she's expressing and how much milk she's making. And a lot of it is dependent on baby coming up to the breast, latching to the breast, and having a good feed being satisfied after that feed, maybe resting again, and then coming back and repeating that process. But we also know that babies have a natural suck reflex. We're all pediatricians. We know that babies naturally have an oral reflex, and that's just something that their body will do on its own, and babies will just suck. So I often caution families on using pacifiers because there's lots and lots of evidence in the medical literature that frequent use of pacifiers can um, decrease the success of breastfeeding. And the reason why we think that is because usually when babies are giving us that sucking or that oral reflex, they're trying to tell us something that maybe they're hungry and they're ready to feed. 
And so bringing baby to the breast at that time and ensuring a good feed is much more important than giving the baby a pacifier. But if the baby has come to the breast and has had a good feed, and in these very special situations, and I'll go over them, I'm fine with families using pacifiers. So for the vast majority of families, I say wait till like four to six weeks to start a pacifier because that's how much time it really takes to really establish breastfeeding and make sure breastfeeding is going okay. And then after that, I'm like, I don't care. You can use a pacifier. That's fine. You know, whatever you want to do. If baby wants it, that's absolutely fine. But in the beginning, there are certain families that I'll say, yeah, you should use a pacifier if you need it. And one of those is families who have, and this is kind of sad what I'm going to talk about. So families whose whose moms have a history of postpartum depression. So that's having a, a severe depressive episode after birth. We know that for whatever reason, in later pregnancies and deliveries, if the baby uses a pacifier, it actually improves mom's breastfeeding outcomes. That's really interesting. Um, The other very sad situation is if the family has a um, family history of SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome in the family. Um, We know as pediatricians, there are several things that are associated with prevention of SIDS. Most important, back to sleep and having baby swaddled and sleeping in a flat bed without anything else in the bed um, is the biggest thing we can do to prevent SIDS. But in families who have a, a history of, you know, another child um, passing away from SIDS, I do tell them the above and beyond recommendations to prevent SIDS. And one of those is pacifier use. I'm sure that there are other, you know, breastfeeding medicine physicians who might disagree with me, but in, in those special situations, I do see that. What do you counsel for your families? I sort of do the same as you, except for I'm not such a breastfeeding expert. So I usually, um, it's good to know that four to six weeks is usually how long it takes because probably I'd been airing closer a little bit earlier than that. But I do usually say um, once breastfeeding is established, you guys get into your routine, then you can offer the pacifier. But then I also, like you said, say, you know, the most important bond is that you are there to wake up and care for your baby and are present. So if your baby is screaming all the time to that you feel like you are at your wits end um, and this sort of goes along with the postpartum depression then you you use any tools in your toolbox to make sure you have the best newborn experience with your baby so hopefully that's recruiting family members to come and help and give you a break but if you need the pacifier earlier that's what I say too so I think we're sort of on the same page but you really taught me some things to add to my toolbox so I appreciate that. Okay, well, let's talk about after the baby is um, born. So the big day comes, and you get to meet your new bundle of joy, and now the real work really begins. So when should moms expect their milk to come in, and is this different for moms who deliver vaginally versus C-section? Does that make any difference? We know that milk does come in after about two to three days. But what we're saying here, guys, is is kind of your full milk, and that's like the really robust white milk that you'll see um, expressed out if you ever do express your breast milk. Before that, there's a first milk, which is called colostrum, which is a, a very like high protein, high immunoglobulins, lots of like awesome stuff in it to protect baby and help baby and just make the best path for baby in those early days. It's a very low volume milk, and that's what babies are drinking in the first one to two days. Then after mom's milk comes in, it's that sort of robust white milk. 
So that's for most women. Some women who have had a baby before, their milk comes in earlier. We also know that women who deliver vaginally and without an epidural do have their milk come in earlier. Uh, I think I'll wait a few a few days. Uh, <laughs> Full disclosure: I I breastfed both of my kids, and I had epidurals with both of those deliveries. So so I I am not um, saying that that's what every mom needs to do, but it's just something to be aware of. Yeah. So there are real benefits to epidurals. <laughs> there are real benefits to epidurals, like, you know, not having horrible pain during childbirth. But uh, some of the benefits to not having an epidural is um, your, your milk comes in just a little, just a smidge faster. I would say the more important, I guess, risk factor for delayed milk coming in is, uh, you know, we know that cesarean delivery is associated with delayed milk coming in. We also know, you know, it's it's normal nowadays to have a baby when we're a little bit more older and, we're, and our career is established and we've bought a home and all of these sorts of things. And sometimes that happens after age 35. And unfortunately, in the vast scheme of biology, that makes us advanced maternal age. So that can delay milk coming in, just being an, a, a mom who's a little bit older when she delivers. Other medical issues that can delay milk coming in are having gestational diabetes or high blood pressure during during your pregnancy. Well, let's say that a mom has just given birth, whatever mechanism it was, C-section, vaginal delivery, and her goal is to breastfeed exclusively. What can we do in these first few days to increase the supply and how often should they be feeding? Um, what's like a, a good schedule or what do you tell new moms? We know that there is something called the golden hour after the delivery, which is when the baby is quite alert and will latch to mom and breastfeed very well immediately after the birth. This golden hour time is what we also call skin-to-skin time immediately after the delivery. And that skin-to-skin time can happen whether you have a vaginal delivery or a cesarean delivery. doesn't matter. Baby just goes right onto mom's chest and in the vast majority of times will latch immediately and breastfeed beautifully. So that's really important actually for helping milk come in early is that first hour. After that first hour, in the first 24 hours, we want mom to breastfeed on demand. And that just means every time baby kind of wakes up and is looking for um, a nipple, you know, putting the baby onto the breast and feeding baby for as long as baby wants to nurse and nursing on both sides. For extra credit, moms can also do manual expression of breast milk. And so that is using your hands to express drops of colostrum every two to three hours in the first 24 to 48 hours following the delivery. And there's been studies that have demonstrated that moms who do that, their milk comes in faster and at a much higher volume than moms who do not. When you're manually expressing, I know this is a podcast and so nobody can see what I know, we're doing. I wish I could, you know, show <laughs> But it's literally just like pre- push, pushing from the top to the bottom and kind of like compressing on the breast. Or, I mean, like most hospitals, if you deliver at a hospital, will have a lactation consultant that could help 
happen. Right. Yes. So there, there are lactation consultants at most hospitals and UC Davis became baby friendly this past year. And so we have lots of great lactation consultants who can come and see moms. Most of the times the lactation consultants will come and see the mom, you know, after you know, give her some time after the delivery and come and see her the next morning. But one thing that I do encourage um, all moms to look at is this really great website. It's called firstdroplets.com. I have all of my moms look at this website. The residents will go and see the baby and then they tell me about the baby and I go and meet the mom and it's right after delivery and, (laughs) you know, she's recovering and resting. I say, hey, you know, dad, here's your homework. Um, I need you to watch this website and I need you to watch these videos and you guys can watch them together. And that way her and her partner can can look at these videos and kind of learn how to manually express breast milk. Because you're right, there is, is there some massage involved? And then there's also sort of like a squeeze towards the areola. Mm-hmm. We don't ever want to squeeze on the nipple. That, that would be torture. But um, squeezing on the areola can help express that, that colostrum. Great. So let's say you and your baby are in a groove. Things are going well with breastfeeding. And now... Um, you're able to socialize um, and you're able to be with friends and maybe have a glass of wine. And then you're thinking, I don't know, you know, I haven't been, I'd really like a glass of wine, but you might be concerned about it because you're wondering, does the alcohol get into the breast milk? Is that okay for the baby? I would always say that if the mom can feel the effects of wine or beer, then it's time to stop and not have any more. But what the literature tells us is that it's safe for moms to have up to two glasses of wine. So that's eight ounces of wine total or two beers, 12 ounce beers, and be able to breastfeed. We do say that after consuming that wine, um, like that full eight ounces, so two glasses of wine to wait at least two hours after consumption before breastfeeding. So a good idea would be put the baby to breast, go socialize, and then hopefully you've got a little bit of time until your next feed. Or if your baby's a little older and they're down for a while at night, that's a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, a a lot of moms, you know, like, they haven't had anything to drink at all during their pregnancy. And oftentimes, four four ounces of wine is plenty. So if, if having one glass of wine or one beer, I'd say don't even worry about it. But if you're having more of that, you know, just making sure that if you're feeling any of the effects of the alcohol that you're drinking, to wait at least two hours before feeding the baby. So I just want to clarify and double check, because if I'm doing the math correctly, eight ounces of wine is about a third of a bottle. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's why. So it's kind of a a weird recommendation, right? So I would say I usually tell moms like, oh, yeah, having a glass of wine is perfectly fine. Don't worry about that. Having a beer is perfectly fine. Don't worry about it at all. But then moms will ask me, well, how much is too much? So more than eight ounces is too much. And then more than two beers is too much. So kind of going off of that, you know, during um, pregnancy, there's a lot of foods we tell moms to avoid. Like don't eat raw fish and don't eat deli meats and um, don't eat, you know, yogurts or certain other things. And so does that all go out the window once baby comes and she's breastfeeding or are there any foods that you need to avoid while she's breastfeeding? 
it all goes out the window. Hooray! <laughs> Love it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those foods that we have to avoid during pregnancy, it's because there's a small risk of um, transmission of disease to the baby, um, the fetus, um, while it's growing inside of mom and can cause some very catastrophic effects in, in the fetus. But all of that risk leaves after mom delivers the baby and is just can enjoy her life and eat whatever she'd like. What about um, marijuana edibles? Would that be okay? So we just talked about beer and wine, right? So I think the next logical question that we get a lot is, you know, what about marijuana use? So we know that marijuana use in the state of California is perfectly legal. You can buy it at a store. But we don't actually really know uh, the effects on newborns um, and on um, infants because we can't really study it, right? So the literature that we know about marijuana effects on babies, it actually comes from a university on the East Coast. I think it's in Mississippi, and they have like one strain of marijuana that was developed in like the 1960s. And it's very different in terms of its potency compared to the strains of marijuana that are available today. And, and we know that that very non-potent marijuana that is studied has been demonstrated to have like negative effects on kids. So we know that there is a, a risk for, you know, affecting with babies' neurodevelopmental outcomes. And so I always tell families, you know, don't use marijuana while you're breastfeeding. The other thing about um, breast milk is it actually expresses an increased concentration of marijuana compared to what mom is exposed to. So for whatever reason, um, marijuana is potentiated or increased in breast milk when it's expressed. So I always tell families like not using marijuana during breastfeeding. What about babies being allergic to breast milk or being allergic to components in breast milk? So a breast milk allergy, it's actually, an, in most babies, an allergy to cow's milk protein. And so a breast milk allergy or allergic proctocolitis, that can occur in babies who are exposed to breast milk or exposed to cow's milk formula, which is like your typical formulas that you can get at the store, Similac or Infamil. We know that it's really common. So a half a percent to 1% of all babies can develop this allergy. And what it is in the vast majority of cases is eczema or bloody stools. It's very alarming to parents. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Very frightening. You know, when you see your little cute baby and suddenly they have bloody stools. It is not a very sick appearing baby with bloody stools. So that's, that's going to be something different. And certainly a trip to the ER is warranted in that case. But if you have a happy appearing baby who maybe has a little bit of eczema or maybe has a little streak of blood in their stools, I think it's perfectly appropriate to call your pediatrician about it and talk about the possibility of breast milk or cow's milk allergy. And so what do we do about that? So if you're faced with this, you know, dilemma in your office, you're seeing your patients, you're wondering what's going on, it's probably cow's milk allergy. So asking mom to eliminate dairy in her diet is a good first step. And we usually ask moms to do that for at least two weeks. It takes a few days for babies to respond to the change in diet. So it's totally normal during that time that if babies continue to have a little bit of bloody stool um, or worsening of their eczema in the first three to four days after the elimination diet, that's almost expected. But if the baby's responding as we expect to the elimination diet, like by the end of the week, they should really be much better. And what we ask moms to eliminate is dairy. So gosh, that's rude, right? Like 
Yeah, all the cheese. I, I, I'm a big cheese gal myself, so that would be a struggle. I know. <laughs> cheese, yogurt, ice cream. Um, all Especially for a postpartum mom who really needs to amp up her own calories and make that breast milk. It's so hard to tell that mom, like, hey, yeah, you can't eat this anymore. And the other thing we have to remember to remind families who are doing elimination diets is that sometimes dairy can sneak into different things and it's called something else like casein or whey. And so just just letting them know that it's all forms of dairy that can cause this reaction. I have one more question uh, before we move into separating from the baby because there is a common I don't know, misconception that you can't get pregnant when you're breastfeeding. So some people use this as a form of birth control. And if, you know, maybe some people would end up having a five month and a 22 month old at the same time. So can you debunk this for us? I will try my best. I would say I don't think that I can debunk it because I think there is some validity to that method of contraception. However, it is still being actively studied. So what Dr. Lean is talking about is something called lactational amenorrhea, which is where you don't have your period when you're breastfeeding. There are some historical studies that have demonstrated that it's actually a pretty valid way to prevent you know, a pregnancy. So if, you, if your baby is less than six months, and you are exclusively breastfeeding, and I'm talking exclusive, no, no skipping a feed, no, you know, partner feeds them in the middle of the night while mommy sleeps, which is perfectly acceptable to do, but I'm just talking about for this method of contraception, no formula feeding whatsoever. It's not unreasonable in families who are okay with possibly getting pregnant <laughs> yeah. to use that as a form of contraception. Because um, there's actually decent evidence that moms who are exclusively breastfeeding and the baby's less than six months, if they get a period, they do not ovulate before that first period. Wow. That, yeah. But this is a huge but. Lactational amenorrhea, I would not say that it's a very valid well-studied form of birth control, but I think that it's a reasonable option for women who understand how it works and are also like slightly okay with maybe getting pregnant. Yeah. We do know like in, you know, the grand scheme of evolution that breastfeeding after having a baby helps, has helped women to space out their babies in a safe way so that they can recover from their delivery, um, you know, lose that excess weight from the pregnancy, go on with their life. And then once the baby weaned that they get pregnant again. Um, but nowadays we have wonderful other contraceptive options. That's great to know. I definitely learned something from that. So, <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. Right. So we can say that breastfeeding decreases the chances of getting pregnant, but not, not as effective as um, other methods such as barrier methods or other hormonal methods. Yeah, certainly if I have, um, you know, a family who's interested in non-hormonal birth control, there's a lot of great options. 
and certainly speaking to your primary care doctor about possible contraceptive options after um, delivery is really important. And I would have those conversations, and I know a lot of our obstetric providers are having those conversations before birth hospitalization discharge because nobody wants to get pregnant in that first month after the delivery, and it has happened before. So just want to caution everybody on that, okay? So in this first part of our breastfeeding podcast, we really discussed all the benefits of breastfeeding, not only for the infant, but for the mother. Yes, tons of benefits for mom. We also talked about all of the materials you might need and things to consider in terms of pumps and maternal comfort. We talked about how to promote breastfeeding right from the get-go, from the first hour, the golden hour, um, right after birth with skin, when skin-to-skin contact is being maintained, and how important that is in terms of initiating successful breastfeeding. And we also talked about consuming alcohol while breastfeeding, what's okay, what's not, and that really you get to eat anything when you're breastfeeding. Hooray! <laughs> Right, but don't but avoid marijuana. <laughs> right. We want to avoid marijuana. And we talked about things like milk protein allergies and what to look out for. And that reminds me of a joke. Oh no. A breastfeeding joke. <laughs> yeah. What do you call it when a mom tries to breastfeed and it just doesn't work out well? What? A milk dud. Oh my god, that's <laughs> horrible. <laughs> Funny but horrible. Uh, yeah, milk duds. Nobody that's a, I don't know who gets milk duds anymore. But <laughs> we want to thank Dr. Adrian Hoyt Austin for being with us today and sharing your vast knowledge of breastfeeding with us. It was so fun. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.